You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We continue tonight our series on Ukraine with one of my favorite guests, Judge Jamie Baker, who is frankly one a national security law expert on all kinds of topics. But just briefly, he is now at the Syracuse College of Law, and he is also the director of the Institute for Security Policy and Law. And he also served as, correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. And he's done a lot of other things, but it's crazy. Of course, he was on the NSC, but we're going to go right into it tonight because tonight there has been something unusual that has happened, which is a defector from the Wagner militia, which is believed to be, do you want to characterize it, Judge Baker? How would you describe Wagner militia and and sort of what the new update is here? It's a, it seems to be a serial war crime, private army of Putin and perhaps others in Russia. They have done notorious things in Africa, in Ukraine, in Chechnya, and other places. One of the things I would like to mention tonight, and I would say that the focus should not be just on Wagner, it should be on Russia. The two messages I'd like to deliver, we've talked in the past about war crimes and other things in Ukraine. I think as we enter the heart of winter and the challenge of holding together the NATO alliance in the face of energy issues, heating issues, and fatigue. It's important to remember why Ukraine matters to NATO, why Ukraine matters to all the countries along Russia's border, why Ukraine matters to the United States and United States security. The other thing we need to remember is when we last talked, we talked about the clear indications about all the war crimes that were being committed in Ukraine. We now know, we have a sense of scale now that is extraordinary, extraordinarily tragic and extraordinarily outrageous. The Ukrainian prosecutorial authorities have opened up 50,000 investigations, 50,000 investigations. Let's break that down a little bit into the sort of the categories of things you mentioned when we spoke last time, targeting of civilians, which happened on a grand scale this week. On a grand scale, unfortunately, every week, I think you have in mind the department. But but let me give you a sense of scale. When we talk about war crimes, the, the term is used sort of generically to describe crimes that are committed during war. But we here we have the, the four major war crime areas. We have war of aggression. This is, of course, a quintessential war of aggression. Uh, we have crimes against humanity, which involve widespread or systematic attacks directed against the civilian population. Check that box. We have genocide, which appears to be the case here. I, As a judge, I would want to see the specific evidence of intent, but we seem to have an intent to destroy in whole or in substantial part a national ethnic group. And that seems to be reflected in Putin's words about Ukraine. And then we have a fourth category of so-called war crimes, which are war crimes themselves, grave breaches of the law of armed conflict. And I was thinking the other day, boy, is there anything they haven't been alleged to have done? (laughs) Torture, rape, indiscriminate attacking of civilians, and so on. I could go on. I, they, they've used starvation Maybe, as a yeah. weapon. And looting But now as let well. me give you a sense of scale. You mentioned the apartment building in Dnipro that went down, uh, was struck by a Russian missile just the other day. Here's the number of apartment buildings of housing units that the government of Ukraine has indicated have been destroyed so far. 135,000 apartment buildings and residential units. Here's a statistic that is mind-boggling. The United States government, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. indicated that the number of Ukrainian nationals who have been forcibly deported to Russia includes 900,000 to 1.6 million people, including 250,000 children, are the estimates. That's obviously a range of estimate in terms of the Ukrainian nationals who have been forcibly deported to Russia. So the defection of the Wagner Group individual is noteworthy. 
but it should not cloud the fact that the scale of criminal conduct by Russia and Ukraine is mind-boggling and is not just reflected in the Wagner Group, but is reflected across the board. It's an unbelievably grim, dystopic picture that we're seeing. On that score, let's talk at least briefly before we go back and play for our listeners, your very thorough and well-considered podcast from last year when this started. But let's just take a minute and talk about where and how anyone can be held accountable, not just considering what international norms and laws might apply, but separately sort of the fact that no leader at this level has been held accountable since, well, maybe since World War II. I mean, if you don't count Milosevic, but I'd like to sort of get your reaction to that. The, that I'm going to react to is where might we find accountability? There are a number of possibilities. I think the most likely forum with jurisdiction would be courts in Ukraine. That's where the crimes were committed. Uh, that's where the victims are found. And other possibilities, of course, there's been talk of a special tribunal in the model of sort of the Rwanda or Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia tribunals. There is the ICC. There are the national courts of different countries, many of which will have jurisdiction over some or all war crimes, depending on how they've legislated in their domestic jurisdiction. Of course, finding a forum is only part of the problem, getting custody of the perpetrators and then dealing with the scale and the scope of the evidence and materials is, is going to be a great challenge. One point I'd like to make about accountability here is we do focus, and it's right to focus, on mechanisms of justice, criminal justice, in the form of courts and tribunals and so on. But there are other forms of accountability as well that we should not neglect. Command responsibility is an essential principle of military leadership as well as the law of armed conflict. And commanders are responsible for what they direct. They're also responsible for what they should know or should have stopped. And what we have here is a army of war criminals and a command structure of commanders who either directed war crimes, and there's some indication uh, even recently that that is in fact the case, as well as commanders who have not done anything to stop war crimes. And I think we know who many of those commanders are. Perhaps we know who all of those commanders are. They're never going to be able to leave Russia again if they survive the war. That's a sanction, a travel sanction. That's not the same as justice in a court of law, but it is a form of sanction, name and shame. I would like to see also more attention paid to those frozen Russian government assets overseas. I think that under U.S. law, we can freeze them. We cannot seize them. The law could be changed under IEPA, something you know all about. Under the international law doctrine of state responsibility and countermeasures, I think there's a very strong legal basis to, in fact, seize those assets and use them for the reconstruction of Ukraine. What's the scale of the reconstruction of Ukraine? Of course, we have all these criminal conduct, starting with the war of aggression. The government of Ukraine estimates that the cost of rebuilding the country will be $750 billion. I've seen so-called more conservative estimates from international organizations in the $350 billion range. What was the Marshall Plan? The Marshall Plan was $13.3 billion, and in today's dollars, $150 billion. So that will give you a sense of the scale of the destruction uh, that has been caused by Russia in Ukraine. Well, I'm glad you asked and answered that question. Shades of Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Uh, all right. It's great to talk to you. And I hope that I know you're a busy man, but um, this is going to play out over the coming months. And I hope you come back and talk to us really soon. And with that, please Can I make enjoy. one final point before you sign <laughs> off? I think, I think this is probably the most important point. It really is. Ukraine matters to NATO security. It matters to Eastern Europe security. It matters to United States security. This is all about deterrence of aggression. We've learned over and over again, as in the past, that if you don't stop an aggressor, they will continue to aggress. Ukraine is stopping Russia. If they're not stopped there, they will move on. China is watching in terms of how Taiwan plays out in the future. 
Is the West reliable as a partner in terms of standing with those who face invasion? We have the nuclear, biological, and chemical threats, both in the form of the potential use of a tactical nuke, so-called tactical nuke, or strategic nuke, but also the threat of using uh, nuclear power plants as a weapon. Think Chernobyl. And of course, here's the final point that relates to the topic. It matters as a matter of scale, the human suffering, and it matters as a matter of law. Nations that care about law, nations that care about the integrity of states, the law of armed conflict, humanitarian values, this is a conflict that places that center stage. We must continue to support Ukraine if we want to see a 21st century founded on principles of law rather than founded on principles of aggression. I hope there's not already fatigue. And I know there's been already some statements from the newest Congress that they're suddenly concerned about resources being devoted to Ukraine. And then some of those statements were walked back and they were more in the nature of, we just want accountability. We want to know where the money's going. But I take your point in looking back in history, one does have to wonder if there had been this show of force early in World War II, if the results might have been different earlier than they were. So it's an excellent point. It's going to be interesting to see how Americans react to this over time, but it's also going to be very interesting to see how Europeans react to this, but it's not a particularly cold winter over there. I've been going back and forth to Eastern Europe as many times as I can to make the case to both demonstrate that America stands with NATO and stands with the nations of Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, and to continue to focus on why this matters to all of us and that we don't lose sight of that. I do find the most interesting thing that you said and the thing that I guess I've been feeling all the time is what's why would he stop here? If he's successful, why would he stop with Ukraine? I, I think the Baltic states, Moldova, uh, Georgia, which already has faced Russian aggression, all these states are vulnerable. And we've learned the lesson of Munich. We've learned it in the Balkans again, right? Milosevic was stopped not on his first or second war, but not until 1999 when NATO acted with air power in the Kosovo situation. This conflict is all about stopping aggression, demonstrating that deterrence works, and solidifying NATO as a source of security and law in the world, frankly, but also in that part of the world. It is interesting that the defector at the very tip of Norway, he walked into Norway, a NATO country, the only one that's fully admitted to NATO and has been for decades. And he would have at that point had the option to walk into another country. I keep a running list of issues about the law and law of armed conflict that this horrible war against Ukraine has raised, issues about what does it mean to directly participate in hostilities, the targeting of nuclear power plants, command responsibility. And we also see that the law is not as clear as it might be in the area of mercenaries. The definition of mercenaries found in Protocol 1, the United States is not a party, but the definition found in Protocol 1 is very restrictive. And ultimately, the sanction against mercenaries is not the fact that they're mercenaries, but whether they have status as a combatant in POW or not, they're still subject to humane treatment. They're still subject to a legitimate tribunal for any war crime prosecution. But this is an area, one of many areas that this conflict has indicated needs to be looked at again by all of us. Remember what President Zelensky said when he was talking before the International Bar Association. Uh, he wasn't addressing this point directly, but he said, this war will be settled by the lawyers after the, the military and the diplomats are done. And we should start extracting immediately the lessons to be learned and try and apply those lessons as soon as possible. Thank you for uh, letting me talk. I, I, I'm always I, glad to listen. I love listening to you talk. I um, And I love it when you ask and answer your own questions because it saves me so much breath. You're always spot on. I haven't, I, I don't know if I've ever, ever heard you say anything I didn't think was spot on. So that's a gift. Well, let's but, leave um, it at that. Yeah, like, don't let's leave it at that. Let's hard. leave it at yeah. that. But I'm always happy to see you. And I hope our listeners will enjoy this podcast that is upcoming. This was recorded a year ago. If you don't think it's prescient, let me know but I suspect you will.
We're recording this on the 15th day of Putin's attack on Ukraine. To date, we've learned some facts about the conflict that suggest gross violations of international law. As of right now, we've learned that Russia has used thermobaric bombs, cluster bombs, and as of this recording, he has threatened the use of nuclear weapons. The second thing that we've learned is that Russian, Russia has bombed numerous civilian targets, including hospitals, businesses, such as a shoe factory and apartment buildings. The third thing we've learned is that many of the soldiers in the Russian military are something called conscripts. Now, we need to consider where we are also in terms of technology. The Russian army and the Russian military generally possesses intercontinental hypersonic ballistic missiles. And long before the Ukraine conflict, Russian leaders threatened to, quote, incinerate the United States. We're also dealing in a time of artificial intelligence being used quite widely in all military efforts. Now, while satellites connect us digitally, both Russia and China now have a space force, which many military leaders believe is for the purpose of targeting satellites. Now, in the midst of this shocking assault on democracy, a United States senator called for Putin's assassination, potentially escalating the situation. What laws, treaties, and executive orders apply to Russia in this conflict and to anybody who would not push back against this autocratic megalomaniac? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, your host. My guest today is Judge James Baker, a man who has served every national security legal capacity that you can imagine, including as a National Security Council advisor, State Department lawyer, and chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. We're having Judge Baker today because he can explain the law of war and how it applies to the present conflict. Judge Baker, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Elisa. I would ordinarily say it's a pleasure to be here, but it's really quite unfortunate to be here talking about the law of armed conflict and war crimes in the context of the present conflict. So let me say it's a pleasure to see you and have the opportunity to talk about these important areas of law. Well, I don't think this heralds the sunset of the greatest experiment in democracy in American history, but it is awful in ways that I don't think any of us could have predicted just six months ago. But let's do this for our audience. Let's start with the basics. That's always a good place to start. What international laws and treaties are really applicable to the current situation? Let me start with the law of armed conflict. We can talk about the UN Charter as well, but I think we'll come at this with the law of armed conflict which is also known as the law of war and international humanitarian law. And there's two aspects to the law and war. Some people treat them as one and some people treat them as disaggregate. And others use Latin to describe them, which is a terrible idea because I don't know about you, but I don't speak Latin. But there's two bodies of law. One is the body of law that governs the right to go to war. When can you resort to force? And the other body of law is that law that applies to the means and methods of warfare once you're in hostilities. And I think for our audience today, I think let's focus on that second, right? Because the first is clearly, did Russia have the right to invade Ukraine? Did international law provide a justification for that? The answer is, of course, not. And we'll talk about that in a moment in the context of war crimes. So what is the law of armed conflict? It's the law that applies to how you conduct hostilities once you're in them. Uh, notice that it's called international humanitarian law. That's one of the terms for how we describe it. That's because the goal of the law of armed conflict is not to try and eliminate war. That was tried before with the Washington Treaty, but it's trying to limit the effects of war on both combatants and non-combatants, in particular civilians. Um, that's why it's called international humanitarian law, an effort to make hostilities, which is inherently brutal, as humanitarian as possible. So let's be very clear here. The law of armed conflict is agreed to by whom and where is it memorialized? Sure. There's three things I'd say about this. The law of armed conflict is found in treaty. And here we're talking about the Geneva Conventions and Geneva line of treaties and the Hague Conventions and the Hague line of treaties. It's found in customary international law and it's found in U.S. criminal law. It is real law. 
So let's talk about some basics because there's some very specific rules and then there's some very general rules that apply in all contexts. And I'd like to start with the general rules, which are the principles of targeting. And this is something that you don't have to be a legal expert to understand that Russia is well off the law in this area. There are sort of four basic principles when you're engaged in warfare about targeting. One, you have to distinguish and discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, between military objects and civilian objects and civilians, right? So the indiscriminate firing on cities is not distinguishing between the two. Intentionally targeting civilians, if that is being done, is not complying with the principle of distinction. The next principle is one of proportionality. Even if you are attacking a military object, and we'll agree for the purpose of discussion here that it is a military object, the consequences to civilians cannot be disproportionate or excessive in relation to the direct and concrete military advantage to be gained by attacking that military object. So for example, to use a poor or simple example, If you're taking sniper fire from a building, you can't level the town to destroy the sniper and all of the town. That would be disproportionate. That'd be excessive in relation to the military advantage to be gained by dealing with the sniper. The last two principles that ought to be highlighted here are the principles of necessity and minimization of suffering. And necessity is you can only attack targets that are necessary to attack. So if you can avoid attacking them, you're obliged to do so. It's kind of related to the principle of distinction and military object. But you, you should only attack what you need to to accomplish the military mission. And then minimization of suffering is what it is. And this is where questions about thermobaric weapons might come in. The law generally regulates and in some cases prohibits the use of weapons that will cause undue suffering. And when we talk about thermobaric weapons, we can talk about that. That's not the only issue with thermobaric weapons, but that is one of the potential issues. Let me get more basic. Is Russia part of the Geneva Convention? Do they agree to it? Were they part of that? And people must be sitting there scratching their heads right now. Sure. Russia is a member of the Geneva Conventions, a party to the Geneva Conventions. They're also a party to the Convention on Conventional Weapons, including Protocol 3, which addresses incendiary weapons, which is the treaty law that is most on point and apt to the use of thermobaric weapons. But it's very important to note here, I know people want to say, ask the question, is someone a member of a party to a treaty or not? A lot of this law, in the U.S. view, most of this law is also customary international law. The principles I just outlined are customary international law, whether you are a signatory to Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, the U.S. takes the view, as do most Western states and law-abiding states, that these are customary international law principles. So they would apply even if you were not a member of the relevant Hague Convention or the Geneva Conventions. So it's a two-four here. Russia is both a party and this is binding as a matter of customary international law as well. In some cases, as we'll likely discuss, it is relevant whether you're a party or not. As for example, if we're talking about the jurisdiction to prosecute and the ICC, then it, there is a distinction and an important one as to whether you're a party or not to the Rome Statute or the Rome Treaty. But with respect to these general principles about targeting and then specific rules like no targeting hospitals, no targeting cultural sites and things like that, that's customary international law as well as found in treaty. Okay, well, I would just point out that the BBC is reporting this morning, uh, I believe, a second hospital that has been attacked. Now, I will say that it's my understanding that the messaging in Russia appears to be designed to justify under the treaty what they're doing. And the way they're doing that, it appears to me, is they're claiming falsely that many of these locations are nothing more than that they've been emptied of the civilian patients and the like, and that they're now just serving as military facilities, which is you know, a common refrain in wartime. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But let's, let's move on for just a second. We're talking about conventions that were widely agreed to. We're talking about customary law. I mean, everybody's looking at this man right now and they think he is an autocratic megalomaniac 
leader, but most importantly, those who have studied Putin carefully that we have interviewed on this show have said that he loathes international bodies, including the United Nations. He sees them as mere extensions of the United States government and its policies. He's particularly upset about the European Union, doesn't like it at all. He's part, he was behind a social media effort that supported Brexit. He has said multiple times that he finds NATO's presence in his backyard to be a threat. Others describe it as an existential threat to him. He's talked about broken promises. Now he's raised a lot of ancient grievances in his rambling speeches. But let's go to NATO, which seems to be his interest. He seems most upset about NATO. What can NATO do and what may we be obligated as NATO members to do if he continues his campaign and pushes, for example, into Latvia, Moldova, and maybe even Poland? He certainly has spoken about NATO, as you've indicated, and other instruments of public order. There is a school of thought that says that the NATO issue is not really the issue, but rather his desire to reestablish a Tsarist empire or a Soviet empire. And I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said that the comment about Russia with Ukraine is an empire. Russia without Ukraine is nothing. It's more sophisticated than that. And so that's clearly a motivator as well. With respect to the NATO treaty, so when you say what it, what is NATO's obligations, and, and the president of the United States has made it clear that the United States would uphold its NATO obligations, this derives from the Washington Treaty from 1949. And as anybody who has been awake and conscious in the past 14 days, 15 days, knows Article 5 is the article that is most relevant here, although Article 11 is also relevant. But Article 5 is the one that basically states that an armed attack against one member is an attack against all members. And that's the collective self-defense. International lawyers will recognize that that's the exercising of collective self-defense. They'll also recognize the phrase armed attack which also appears in the UN Charter. At the time the treaty was being negotiated, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was being consulted, actively consulted, and they expressed concern, members of the committee expressed concern about what was in the preamble at the time, which was the notion that the treaty would be implemented in accordance with the constitutional processes of the nations in question, meaning how would Article 5 relate to the congressional war power and the tension or non-tension with the executive branch and the president's war power? Would Article 5 resolve the constitutional questions involved when the use of force is implicated? Or is that a matter for U.S. constitutional process to deal with? So the Foreign Relations Committee, as I understand it, they encouraged Article 5 to be modified by saying, as each state deems necessary. So that gets at one, yes, an attack against one is an attack against all, but each state will deem what's necessary in response because it might be a cyber attack. It might be a, an intrusion, a military intrusion. An attack can come in many different forms. And then Article 11, which applies to the whole treaty, states that the treaty shall be ratified and its provisions carried out by the parties in accordance with the respective constitutional processes. So in theory, the treaty does not answer the constitutional law question, which is whether the president can authorize the use of a military response following an Article 5 trigger. However, I think the argument is very strong, and President Biden obviously thinks it's very strong as well for a number of reasons. If I were the president's lawyer, I'd say that he's constitutional authority is very solid in this regard for different reasons. But one of them is the foreign relations impact, right? He's the chief executive, right. commander in chief, and he has both enumerated and implied authority in the foreign relations area. And the United States willingness, ability and political will to uphold Article 5 is essential to U.S. foreign relations. So it's not just the president's commander in chief authority that is implicated here but his foreign relations authority. And I would note that if you go back, now this is where you're going to be grumpy at me for getting into lecture mode. If you note William Howard Taft's theory of the Constitution, he said, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, 
that the president has very broad authority to engage in defensive hostilities and very limited authority to engage in offensive hostilities. And if you're in an Article 5 scenario, you're in a defensive posture, right? NATO is a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. And that should be noted here as well. But of course, what really matters is what does the president of the United States think of his constitutional authorities? And ultimately, what do his lawyers, what will they advise him on? If I were advising him, I would say he is on a solid constitutional basis to exercise our Article 5 obligations found in the treaty. Right. And even the drafters and in some of the Federalist Papers use the word he's the sole organ of foreign affairs, which treaties unequivocally are. Yeah, that um, so, Kurt is right. And executive branch lawyers love that phrase. Even I, who just said that the president has very broad authority here, would not describe him as the sole organ here. But I take the point that he has broad authority. So I think a reasonable interpretation, regardless of sort of how you see it, would be that he would have the authority to act in this situation in accordance with Article 5 of the treaty. Absolutely. And everybody should know it. And he has signaled so. And that and that is firm position. But it's important to talk this through in advance because you don't want to have that debate in the moment of crisis. You want to have it well established and understood in advance of crisis. Okay, let's go back for a second. I'd like to go back in time. Now, if you talk to any of the sort of older spooks, they would tell you that when Russia was granted a seat on the UN Security Council in 1991, it was really the beginning of the end. Apparently, it was given, I guess, as a reward in theory, or, you know, there was hope that we had come to the end of the Soviet era. But there were also many thinkers on the left and the right at the time who pointed out that KGB stalwarts inside of Russia were already claiming power by divvying up state assets, including oil and gas, which we now know were given to certain oligarchs, perhaps with on condition that they surrender them back to the state if called upon to do so. We don't really know. But let's talk for just a moment about, if you have an opinion about this, is Russia's seat on the United Nations Security Council and what it may mean for the United States' ability to gain global consensus for any action going forward. And then lastly, I think an important part of that is, can we get them kicked off? Well, let me uh, give you my understanding of the arguments one way or the other. They're not generally known. And this goes back when the ordinarily under doctrines of state succession in international law, when a government changes, a, a government in a country that is a member to something under international law remains a member under international law. So the Soviet Union then becomes Soviet Union II. Uh, there'd be no debate in international law that they're the successive state um, and that they would retain the UN Security Council seat. The argument as to why they shouldn't have ended up in that seat is that Russia is not the successor state to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union both imploded and dissolved, and therefore the seat should not have automatically gone to Russia. It should have been determined as to who should get the seat by the UN General Assembly, as it turns out, because Article 18 of the Charter gives the UN General Assembly authority over the rights and privileges of members, as well as expulsion or entry of members, see Taiwan. And when the uh, Soviet Union did dissolve, the majority of of the states that then reasserted their independence agreed that Russia would take the UN Security Council seat. And President Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, sent a letter to the UN at the time saying that's what was going to happen. So on the one hand, the argument would go like this. Because Russia was not, in fact, the successive state to the Soviet Union, which had disappeared, Uh, They should not have had the seat. On the other hand, having written the letter saying we're going to take the seat and the UN General Assembly and the UN accepting that at the time, they did not vote on it or or vote it down. It becomes part of the fabric now of, of the UN. It's a little late, some would say. And I'm sure there's a doctrine found in international law that is a Latin phrase of some sort that says, you know, at some point you have to get on with it and accept that what's happened has happened in that regard. However, as to your second question, 
I would draw our audience's attention to Article 18. So this is the uh, General Assembly, and it, it sort of lists the some of their powers, and they include the admission of new members to the United Nations, the suspension of the rights and privileges of membership, the expulsion of members, and questions relating to the operation of the trusteeship system. So that's not relevant here. So in theory, there is an argument that in a textual argument for sure, that the UN General Assembly could address the membership of Russia, uh, its rights and privileges, including the right and privilege of being on the Security Council. I'm not sure what the, you know, this is a tricky one because uh, the United States is also on the Security Council and we wouldn't want a process and it not be a very stable process if every time the states generally disagreed, the UN General Assembly disagreed with a permanent member of the UN, uh, the Security Council, then they decide to vote them off the Security Council. That then becomes something of an international law game show. So there's problems with asserting or exercising the Article 18 argument here. On the other hand, if you are arguing the other side of it, you'd say, if not now, when, right? If this isn't a violation, a gross violation of all the tenants that are founded in the charter, both the humanitarian tenants, as well as the state territorial integrity and independence of states tenants, if not now, then when? That's a question for policymakers to consider. I think there is an argument that can be made both ways as a matter of legal policy. Naturally, the question that follows is who on the United Nations would make that decision. And I I raise that, of course, because we're also dealing with superpowers, China and India now, who have been quite reluctant to react to Russia, perhaps the ways that we would prefer they react. So on this question, I would not pretend to be the world's leading expert in UN charter and the procedural aspects of the General Assembly and the Security Council. I can read plain English, however, and I would refer the audience to Article 18. And I I would note that Article 18 was invoked when China took the Security Council seat in 1972 and Taiwan lost its membership to the United Nations. So we've seen Article 18 invoked, at least in that instance. This battle is going to be won with the will of the Ukrainian people to defend themselves I was very impressed in the days running up to the invasion. I was impressed with the fire discipline, which reflects professionalism of the Ukrainian military when the Russians were trying to draw them in to engage in firefight, both an artillery fight and a ground weapons fight out in the Donbass when the Russians attacked that kindergarten, among other sites. And the Ukrainians, uh, knowing full well what was going on, It's very hard to do, but the units out there held their fire. They were following the rules of engagement, and that is reflective of a uh, military that wants to both follow the law and is professional. So my point here is I don't want to create false hope to people that, that the answer to this conflict is to go to the UN and have debates over membership. That might be helpful, but what's most helpful is the will of the Ukrainian people to defend their nation and to defend their independence and the rule of law. And and that's going to be decided on the ground in the streets of Ukraine. Well, if I had to bet on who is braver, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky or Putin, surrounded as he is by considerably more firepower, I, I guess my money would be on Zelensky in that but let's let's go on to what else is available and let's talk for a second about the National Security Act of 1947 as now amended obviously that was drafted at the end of the second world war you want to give a little historical context since we're now you know entering a potentially global conflict and uh, what tools does has it given us and what tools would have any efficacy in ending the present conflict Well, here I would work back from the president's toolkit generally, not forward from the National Security Act. And that's going to include diplomacy, uh, economic instruments, which we've seen put in play, including sanctions. Then we would have law enforcement options 
uh, military options and intelligence options. And it's the National Security Act in 1947 as amended includes the authority for much of the intelligence toolkit. And there's other authorities as well. And then Title 10, of course, provides additional authority for the military instrument, as does the Constitution itself in both instances. What I see here, though, is not a, the absence of an identification of tools. We know that the U.S. military has the capacity to do certain things, including defend the NATO countries and including uh, defend countries on the border of NATO. The real question is, which is the appropriate instrument to use in this context, right? I like to say that don't treat things as a paradigm trap. In each instance, you should use all the tools of national security. The question is, in which context? And what we've seen here is that the president is concerned about escalating, undue escalation or unnecessary escalation, or what we're really talking about is escalation that could lead to potential nuclear exchange, which we clearly want to avoid. I think I'll avoid going through each individual tool. Uh, I can, I can, I'm quite confident they're all available as a matter of law. The question is whether they are prudent and wise to use in the current context. I think what lawyers can do to help here is to be ahead of the curve and understand what the arguments may be two days from now, three weeks from now, and so on. So we're not caught unaware, caught for the first time thinking about the president's constitutional authority to defend Finland if Finland is attacked, or the president's constitutional authority to transfer a particular weapon system. Here, we would also look to the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. And if Todd Buckwald were here, I would ask him to review the entirety of the act in two minutes or less, which is an, an essential authority for providing uh, military assistance and training and so on. Judge Baker, you know, Putin has his own rhetoric, as you know, and a lot of people are calling him COVID crazy, myself included. His demeanor has changed, his entire countenance his man, everything is off. Some people say they haven't seen him use one of his arms in a while. They think maybe he's sick. But let me tell you some of the harebrained, in my view, things that he has said that appear to me to invoke some of the terms of the treaties and articles and agreements that you have mentioned. So let's go over them. You talked about sanctions. Generally, I think there was one study done which suggested that the first meaningful impact of sanctions is rarely felt for 90 days into the conflict. But what I want to raise with you is Putin addressed this and said it amounted to a declaration of war. Is there anything that he could fall back on, anything that you are aware of that would allow him to make that claim and have it stick anywhere? Sanctions being a declaration of war. Well, I don't even know where to begin to respond to someone like Putin discussing what is a legal term in U.S. constitutional law and some scholars have argued is a international legal principle. Gene Rostow, one of his views about the declaration of war power, which was that it was a mechanism to signal in international law when two states were in hostilities so as to alert neutral parties. If I were to assert that as the proper reading of the Commander-in-Chief Clause or the Declaration of War Clause, I would spend the rest of my professional career responding to letters from professors. But I don't think Putin is making an international law point in his role as professor. The only thing I'm being careful about, generally, we would not think that sanctions would rise to the level of armed attack or amount to the initiation of hostilities. And I don't believe that's the case at all here, to be very clear. Absolutely not. And in fact, it is a proper response under countermeasures and, and various doctrines of state responsibility and so on, not amounting to hostilities. I, I'm just putting aside some hypothetical scenario where sanctions might, in some other context, not this one, warrant an additional look. But that's not what he's doing, obviously. He's a bully. And you brought up the topic of tables. We can talk about tables, by which I mean very long tables, because you're scared to be near your people. I'm not a Putin watcher. There are people who are doing that very well. But there's more than COVID fear that going on with those tables. It's both a power game and it may be a safety fear as well. I want to go back to one thing, though, quickly make it very clear. We started this discussion with the law of armed conflict, and there's been a lot of talk about war crimes. 
I think it would be helpful just to be clear here that people use the phrase war crime sort of generically to cover all crimes as well as specific war crimes. And just so our general audience, not the legal specialists, but our general audience knows that while we use the term war crimes to describe a number of things, specialists identify four crimes arising in conflict, war of aggression, which at Nuremberg was referred to as the supreme international crime, right? One of the Nuremberg principles was to prohibit wars of aggression. In an invasion of another country without cause is clearly meets that category. That's the supreme international crime in the words of the Nuremberg prosecutors. Crimes against humanity and crimes against humanity describe a widespread or systematic attack in violation of the law. So widespread or systematic attack on civilians, for example. Genocide is, of course, one as well. That's the deliberate killing on a large scale of a national, ethnic, religious, and certain other groups for the purpose of destroying that nation or group, right? That's genocide. And now we get to another category, which is war crimes. And war crimes are all the things we started this session with, the intentional targeting of civilians, the indiscriminate targeting of civilians, the improper use of weapons. These are war crimes, and you will find them listed in the Rome statute, the ICC statute, but where else will you find them? You'll find them in Title 18 of the United States Code, Section 2441. That's real law. It's U.S. criminal law. But that doesn't mean there's jurisdiction in this case. But these are real crimes. And so when we talk about war crimes, we're talking about that set of specific war crimes like torture, indiscriminate killing of civilians and so on, but also the other three crimes that are part of this kit of war crimes. Back to Putin. Why did I bring this up right now? Because you brought up Putin, which raises one of the fundamental principles of the law of armed conflict. There's five elements to command responsibility, and it's important to know what those five are in this context. Why? Because the Russian military is also responsible for what is going on, not just Putin, right? And, and so I want to, can I pause you for just two seconds? Yes, I, 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 this is in a very important thing because the Putin watchers, the people who know him best, have pointed out that in the publicized meeting that he had, during which time he basically announced he was going to do this, that the military leaders who they had watched for decades were visibly uncomfortable. One, it is reported, has since lost his own son during the conflict. Assuming for just a moment that these people are not comfortable with what he is doing, will they nevertheless find themselves responsible, legally um, speaking? Well, uh, it depends. So the doctrine of command responsibility posits that people are individually responsible for their actions, right? If I, as a commander, order a war crime, I am responsible. So that's individual responsibility. Commanders are also responsible for crimes that they had reason to know of and did nothing to stop. That's the Yamashita principle. If you are a commander and you see indiscriminate shelling of a city, you have reason to know that that's occurring and you have a duty to stop it. Commanders must take reasonable steps to prevent violations of the law of armed conflict. That's training your people, giving them rules of engagement. You can't just send them out. You have to take reasonable precautions and reasonable steps to make sure the law is followed. Can I pause you there on that score, on that precise point? We're going to hover over that for just a second, which is that it's been widely reported that most of these people fighting are nothing more than conscripts. What are conscripts? And assuming arguendo, if this reporting is true, that they've received virtually no training and were sent there with no understanding of what was about to occur, how would that apply? Well, the fact that the soldier in question is a conscript doesn't change the commander's responsibility to ensure that the law is followed. What it does change is one's calculus as to what is necessary to ensure that the law is followed, applying the doctrine of command responsibility. So a conscript is a draftee, and many professional armies have had draftees. So the, the fact that someone is a conscript doesn't excuse them from violating the law of armed conflict. One of the issues here, as I understand it, is that conscripts, they're not just conscripts, but they're not receiving training before they're sent forward, or they're, they're receiving just the minimum 
of training. And, and my guess is, I'm being entirely facetious here, that training is not including law of armed conflict, which is actually required under the law of armed conflict to be provided. Uh, I so- take that bet, sir. I would take that bet. Yeah. I think yeah. you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's a small chance of that. But the fact that you're a conscript, that may change the calculus of what we expect of the conscript, but it doesn't change the calculus, the responsibility of the commander. It changes what we think the commander should do, which is more exercise of control. And I looked the other day, a couple of months ago, uh, I was trying to figure out whether there are judge advocates in the Russian military. And that's a challenge I present to you, which is if you can find me a judge advocate in the Russian military, and by that I mean someone who's actually doing the law of armed conflict, they have a prosecutorial general service, which is to no doubt enforce discipline. So if those conscripts seek to flee, they can be prosecuted for desertion and going AWOL, but they do not, as I can tell, and as we can see, have anybody who is responsible for upholding and advising on the law. That's the commander's responsibility in the end. So to pick up two more elements of command responsibility, generally people think, oh, this is a military responsibility, but the international criminal tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda have applied the doctrine to civilians as well, C.E.G. Milosevic who in 2002 was brought to The Hague for prosecution. So civilians can be held to account under the doctrine of command responsibility if they're exercising command or or should be. And then the fifth element is a duty to investigate and prosecute if appropriate. If there's an allegation, a credible allegation or an allegation of war crime, you have a duty to investigate it. And if it's credible, you have a duty to to prosecute. So why is there hesitation? Why might there be hesitation to call this stuff out at this time? And this is just me speaking. I should be very clear. I don't speak for my court. I don't speak for the United States government. I speak for Jamie Baker. So in the criminal law, including the law of armed conflict, of course, there needs to be an intent. But we know as well from the criminal law that in certain cases, we can presume intent where the actions in question are the natural and probable consequence of what you're doing. You can say, well, how would we ever prove intent that they intended to fire on civilians or they intended to fire indiscriminately into the city? And the answer is, well, we don't have to prove specific intent. We don't need a document stating that that's what they intended to do, the commander. We might infer that as a natural and probable consequence of firing artillery randomly into a city. That's the question of intent. Under command responsibility, though, we also need to know who in fact is the commander, right? So one of the problems here is we can talk about command responsibility, but if you don't know who's actually the battery commander, the battalion commander, the regimental commander, the division commander of the artillery units that are firing indiscriminately into the city, then saying there's a war crime is great, but you don't know who committed it under the doctrine of command responsibility. So if I were capturing Russian soldiers, I would be building a record of what the chain of command looks like so that the Russian military knows that they are responsible for what is occurring. And it's not just Putin and oligarchs that may find it hard to travel in Europe in the future. It is also Russian military officers who are identified as implicated in what is going on. And then, of course, there's element of proof. This is a a war, among other things, about the rule of law. So when we talk about war crimes, we should also talk about actually proving them and doing so with evidence. Here, I would note that the Ukrainian military actually had units that were trained in war crime forensics. Although complicated, cell phones in some way make everyone a war crime forensics collector. That doesn't mean that's going to be good enough. But we want to make sure that when we talk about war crimes, we also talk about actually proving them and not uh, just asserting them. Clearly, it's ongoing. You don't need to be an expert in thermobaric weapons. You just need to look out and see that there's indiscriminate firing on civilians and there may be intentional targeting of civilians. And that is a war crime. And, And that's without talking about specialized weapons, specialized rules and complicated issues of proportionality, if there are such. So uh, there's a lot here. And uh, I I rather suspect that evidence is being collected 
And I, I also suspect, and I say this based on what's publicly reported exclusively, that there is a lot of internal dissent in Russia that we're not hearing about. And then there's some that is apparent. It's obvious um, when some of these things have been broadcast. But what is not helpful in any conflict is when somebody says something off the cuff. But that did happen here. And it was unfortunately by a senior United States Senator, Lindsey Graham, who decided to put forth in social media that he and say that he thought Putin should be assassinated. Now, I just want to back up in case, first of all, there are no quick fixes. And there are people around Putin who've been identified by experts as those who could immediately stand in his stead and who are basically of the same Velshenshon. So understanding that, let's talk for just a second about this suggestion of foreign assassinations. Now, Foreign assassinations and assassinations of political leaders are banned, but under executive order 11901. But there are other principles and other laws that say that this is a not a permissible action. Am I right? Yes. So we have a couple of layers of analysis here to go through. One is just to take care of it. Uh, we're referring to the so-called assassination prohibition. It's not so-called. It's there in Executive Order 12333 and dates back to President Ford, but was enshrined uh, most notably in Executive Order 12333 during the Reagan administration by President Reagan. The Executive Order, of course, applies to United States personnel and actors. And, you know, a presidential executive order is not applicable to necessarily to Russian actors. Um, one of the questions is, how is that defined? And the answer is, ask the president of the United States. It's in an executive order. And I will leave it there. In the context of a particular senator's comments and the response to his comments, I would make two comments and put Executive Order 12333 to the side here. One, in a context where the United States, the president has made it very clear that he's seeking to avoid escalation, as between the United States and Russia, having a person who might be construed or perceived by actors in Russia or not perceived, but nonetheless played for propaganda reasons. It, it looks like a, a potential escalation. It looks like uh, one could say, well, that that looks like some form of hostility. Um, and if you're trying to de-escalate rather than escalate, it's not helpful to have senators walking around saying such things. I would further add, and this is an important point, in scholars, there's some debate on this, but I, don't, I, I think it's fairly clear, and I'd refer people to the DOD Law of War Manual, which anyone in the audience can look up on the internet. Under the Law of Armed Conflict, under the Hague line of the article, treacherous killing is prohibited, and treacherous killing is thought to include assassination. We get into problems here with the law of armed conflict as well, potentially. And then why do I say potentially? Because someone will say, oh, but what about targeting a military leader as part of uh, the Yamamoto uh, shoot down? And there's a difference between a lawful military object and assassination. That has to do with whether you're doing something in a treacherous manner or not. So assassination is is thought of as like poisoning someone or doing something like that. So I think that's those were two of the reasons why there was such an immediate response, I believe. You mentioned the sole organ. I didn't I pushed back a little and the president's not the sole organ. That's a Justice Sutherland theory of law. But uh, it's certainly helpful if the United States speaks with one voice particularly when the opponent uh, appears not capable of exercising a sophisticated uh, view or a disciplined view. Um, so that's, that's a problem as well. Why might you want to prohibit, either as a matter of policy, law, or legal policy, assassination? It's the same reason you might be worried about running around charging everybody with war crimes, although if they've committed them, they should be held to account. But you do want to have someone left to negotiate the end to hostilities. And you don't want to put everyone into the posture where it's total war because there's nothing to lose. So if every Russian officer were accused of war crimes, credibly accused of war crimes, and knew that there was no path forward other than through The Hague, uh, that might impact their willingness to both cease the illicit conduct and also end the conflict. So I think that or de defy defy orders, refuse to carry out. Oh, so uh, you're orders, right? You want them. 
you want them to have that option. Yeah, and 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 I think we've made it clear. I mean, what I'd like to make clear is because of command responsibility, there's there's an option here, which is to follow the law, to target in a discriminate manner and with proportionality. And one thing most people, so some people linger in the past on this, and some most people don't. But there's no such thing as a superior orders defense. In the United States military, this is a Nuremberg principle that following orders does not relieve you of war crime accountability. And in the United States military, the way that that is implemented, and if you would like, there's a uh, an article in Just Security that I did on this topic of superior orders. But but the basic rule is that a U.S. military member has an obligation to follow lawful orders, right? That's good order and discipline. You can't have a professional military if you don't follow orders. However, you have an obligation not to follow an unlawful order if a reasonable person would know the order was unlawful. Because it's, it's, it's hard. This gets back to the conscript issue. If you're a young conscript, whether they would know a law, an order was unlawful or not, whether they would reasonably know that an order was unlawful or not, depends in part on training, depends in part on a number of things. But we can certainly agree that any rational actor, any reasonable person would know that certain things were unlawful, inherently unlawful, like intentionally targeting civilians, intentionally targeting a hospital, unless, of course, the hospital was being used for military purpose. And there's no indication these two hospitals were being used for military purposes, absolutely none. If you're a Russian commander, it is not a defense to commit war crimes to say that you were ordered to do so by your chain of command running up to Putin. That does not relieve you of the obligation not to follow the order if it's unlawful. Okay, well, we the next time we do this, we'll record it entirely in Russian and we'll disseminate it on Telegram. Does that work for you? Yeah, that works for me. Thank you. <laughs> Anything that might end the hostilities in a manner that preserves Ukraine's independence and the rule of law and protect civilians there is a good thing. If I have to go try and learn Russian uh, between now and our next podcast, I'll certainly give that a go because th- these are people who deserve their independence. I sense that they have a deep commitment to rule of law or a desire to develop a commitment to rule of law. And we certainly have seen inspiring leadership from the government of Ukraine uh, starting at the very top. Here, here, I would agree with that. Is there any last words here, anything else that we should be thinking about as we look at this in terms of our laws, international law, military law, and potential legal consequences? I I did hear what you said about Milosevic, and I, I would say that obviously Putin would, as a civilian, as you've described, have liability here to the ICC under the Rome Statute. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out? So the answer is yes. I have seven hours of additional material I'd like to share with you. That's great. That's terrific. Go ahead. (laughs) No, no. But so I'd like to to share two things, which really means 43. One of the issues we didn't talk about, and it, it relates to what I want to conclude on, which is how do you enforce this stuff? In the United States military, it's enforced because the backbone of the military is leadership and good order and discipline. And good order and discipline falls back on the Uniform Code of Military Justice and obedience to orders, including the order to follow the law of armed conflict. But what do you do in a case like Russia in the context of an invasion of Ukraine? How can that law be enforced? And it can lead to sort of cynicism about the law if you don't see a path forward to enforcement. And the next time we meet, because it's a complicated subject that doesn't lend itself to single bullets. There are venue options, but also venue issues. It is as complicated as saying it depends in part on which war crime you're talking about. The war of aggression, jurisdiction over the war of aggression at the ICC, for example, is treated differently than war crimes in terms of when and how you can assert jurisdiction, if at all. So it requires some readout. But here's what I'd like to note and conclude on. Some people who are observing this outrageous abuse, both in terms of the invasion, as well as the manner in which Russia is conducting itself, might say, well, you talk about the law of armed conflict, but is there really a law of armed conflict when at least one party is not following it? Why should we care about the law? You know, there's the old phrase, everybody likes to quote Cicero, that the law falls, falls silent in time of war. And it may feel that way to the civilian who's under, in, under indiscriminate bombing. 
the New Haven School of Law would identify what is operational law and what is aspirational law. I get that. But here's why we should care. The government of Ukraine should care about the law, why we should care about the law and continue to talk about it and uphold it. One, following the law of armed conflict is good for national security and it's good for military results. The difference between a mob with weapons and a professional military is leadership, training, and adherence to the law of armed conflict. The principle of discrimination and proportionality embodies the military principle of economy of force. You want to save the force you have for when you need it, not exhaust it gratuitously on targets that don't need to be attacked, and certainly on civilians. Following the law also supports the will to fight. If I'm a Ukrainian, I don't want to fight for a nation that is violating the law of armed conflict uh, and committing abuses. I want to fight for a nation that is committed to the rule of law. Uh, So it helps recruitment. It helps for public support. It also helps for allied support. It's very important to follow the law of armed conflict because, as we learned with Guantanamo Bay, when your allies do not feel that you are adhering to the law of armed conflict, they may not share information with you. They may decide they don't want to share as many weapons with you and so on. So it's an essential ingredient to sustaining allied support and coalition support. It also leads, for example, following the law, humane treatment of detainees, let's say Russian soldiers who have been captured, they're more likely to share with you information, information about who is responsible for what is occurring in information about where the next tank may come down the road or where where the next attack may come. So I would say to people who are worried that without a foreseeable courtroom in which these things could be adjudicated, that does not mean the law doesn't matter. It means the law matters greatly, but like Milosevic, you may have to wait for your day in court, but your day in court may well come. But the law is still vital to security, still vital to who we are. And I would note here as well that the first modern expression of the law of armed conflict was the Lieber Code in 1863, which was adopted and signed by President Lincoln as General Order 100 in the middle of a civil war. You can have law in the most arduous of circumstances, and it's what distinguishes a professional military from a mob with weapons in an autocrat's military. All right. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to pull it. I know it did take a while to bring Milosevic to justice. I don't see a situation where Vladimir Putin would sort of disappear only to be discovered a decade later, posing as a shaman with long hair and selling health tonic. But there would be a a certain delight in seeing him so deteriorated. I sincerely hope that this ends through the will of the Russian as well as the Ukrainian people. And I really appreciate you setting forth these principles in a time when retribution and anger is really guiding, I think, a lot of the discourse. It's important to remember that if we cleave to these fundamental principles, that the order of the world and civil society does ultimately prevail, as does the rule of law, which is better for peace and stability across the globe. Thanks for coming in. I know that I'm going to bother you again very soon because this is a fast-moving situation. I hope and pray that the next time we speak, there has been no use of nuclear weapons and that any further use of these really horrible weapons has been stopped by those persons within Russia who want to do the right thing here and who may at this moment be too afraid to speak up and take charge. And could I just say, it's a pleasure to be with you, but it's never a bother to talk about the rule of law and why it matters. So thank you for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. We're always happy to have you. You you always give a great education to our audience, whether you're neophytes or seasoned attorneys in the area of national security law. Our guest tonight has been Judge James E. Baker, whose bio I have hyperlinked in the notes to our cast. It's an illustrious bio. I can only hope that some of you young national security lawyers will have the opportunity to serve in one or two of the positions that he has held. It's always a pleasure to have you. We hope that you'll come back soon. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.